God with the voice of triumph. Lord, we give you praise in this place. Hallelujah. Glory to our God. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? The title of the message last Sunday was called The Birth of a Vision. This morning, in the second installment of this Nehemiah series called Arise and Build, the message today is called What Does Preparation Look Like? Some of you are in the midst of preparatory years right now. You're in school, maybe homeschool. Some of you are deep, your neck deep involved in homeschooling your children, your sons and daughters. Maybe they're in a Christian school, a private school, a public school, whatever. You're involved in the preparatory process of getting that individual ready to do life, to do it as a responsible adult. And so there are years of preparation. You go to school 13 years. Some of us go a little longer than that. And then you go beyond that to either a skill or a trade school or maybe an undergraduate degree of some kind, associates in two years and bachelor's maybe in four, and maybe some of you even go beyond that for a uh, postgraduate degree. Or maybe you get OJT, you get on-the-job training, and you sit through a few classes to learn a trade, and you attach yourself to a master electrician or a master craftsman of some kind, <clears throat> plumber, some other craft. And so there's preparation where you are able to get ready to be able to make responsible decisions that won't endanger other people but that you know those decisions will be solid and you will make decisions that will affect the home that somebody lives in or the finances that they live by or the marriage that they're living in, sometimes living through. And so uh, everything has preparation. Sometimes we want to get it as quickly as possible. We live in a convenience culture where it's get your grits quick and uh, you stick them in the microwave and pop them in in 60 seconds and they're ready. And you know, they're, they're consumable, but it's not like it is when somebody makes you a meal uh, that's hot and ready and it's fresh and it's made from good elements or good, good, good pieces of fruit and vegetables and meat and all of that stuff. Um, you know, I learned a long time ago, even as a young man in college, that not to go to the grocery store and shop hungry. I, I, uh, I went to the grocery store for me and my younger brother. We were in college together and had, a had an apartment together and renting together. And I went and bought groceries. And this was back in, I want to say, like 1982. And I left the grocery store with the cart filled, and it was about $200. And I thought, what have I done? And you talk about kicking, kicking my budget in the, in the backside that month. And, and then I got home, and I realized I went to the store hungry. And uh, you don't ever want to go to the store hungry because let me just tell you something. The cartons and all the manufacturing and all the, the marketing that they, they, they do, that food on the front of the package never matches what they have in the box. <laughs> Y'all ever notice that? You see ads on television and, man, you want to get up and go to Wendy's now and get you that double stack. And when they bring it to you, it doesn't look like that picture. What's up with that? It's like fraud. <laughs> And especially in this convenience culture we live in, we can just stick it in the microwave and we know we're in a hurry when we're standing up there going, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, and it's only a minute to get it ready or maybe two minutes or God forbid if it's five minutes, have mercy. I looked on the back of, a, of an Evol, it's like love spelled backwards, it was like a fired grilled steak thing I was eating this week, a little 300 calorie, Lord have mercy when I'm counting those little stinking things, I bind them in Jesus' name. So I'm eating this fire grilled steak thing 
And it says, you can put it in the microwave for five minutes or you can put it in the oven for 55. I said, who would put this in the oven for, I said it out loud by myself. I talk to myself now. <laughs> just me and the dog, so I just say whatever I want to. And who would do that for 55 minutes? And, you know, we've inherited all the stuff that comes along with a convenience culture because everything is disposable. We throw away the carton that has the deceiving photo on the front. The nice little plastic, I don't know, maybe some of you saved that. I don't know. I'm going to leave that alone because I'm going to tell you, I grew up in a house where they saved everything. Oh, my goodness. Mama would get jelly in a certain kind of brand because they had a glass that we could drink out of. And there, you know what the Tupperware was in our house? Cool Whip bowls. <laughs> we, we just real people, and I'm telling you, and never throw anything away. And oh, just thought it was a sin because both my parents grew up in the Great Depression. And I'm going to tell you, I've had to wrestle a little bit of that because I think they were on the verge of being hoarders. Now, I don't know. No, 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 no. My garage looked like I was one. I'm telling you, I'm proud of it. Now, you can come by anytime you want to ring my doorbell. I'll show you my garage. Woo, I got a car in it now, one. Uh, and so I've been throwing away. And it's something about maybe how I was raised that I'm just having to kind of, and oh man, I'm so free. I just feel so good because it just, some stuff, and of course they would never, they'd give it to people and I'm going, nobody wants that junk. Throw it away. I'm talking to somebody right now in this room, I know. Because you can't part with anything unless you give it to somebody. You know what they're going to do? They're going to drive it to the dump and throw it away themselves. <laughs> I'm just trying to be funny now, so forgive me. But it feels so good just to get free and not, have, not be bound by stuff. And I'm looking around, I'm going, why am I keeping this? It has no value, no sentimental value to me, and I don't need 14 of them. I was going through my cabinets, and I had 14 Pyrex dishes. I thought, why do we need 14 glass casserole dishes? My, and my mother-in-law says, this is after Dawn died, and she said, don't you throw those away. I said, Dodgy, how many do you want? Take them home with you. I'm a single man now. I, I'm not going to have to label my dishes at the church potluck. I'm just, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. I hope that doesn't disappoint you. I need two is all I need. Now, I'm, it's preparation in my house because I'm changing. There's a transition. I'm having to manage and deal with my life the way things are now. And There are more good days than there are bad, and I'm grateful for that. There's a bad one every once in a while that can, you know, just really plunge me. But most of the days, they're really pretty good, decent days. And I heard my great friend, my lifelong friend who's been in town since Thursday, was on the phone with my son, their, their buddies. And Drew asked Preston, he said, how's dad doing? And Preston says, he's doing good. I think he's actually looking forward again. And I heard them say that. And so that really touched my heart that, that I've got enough joy in spite of what I've been through for somebody to say, I think he's, think he's looking ahead, he's looking forward so, I don't ever want to try to get up here and make this about me every week, but I'm the vessel, and you can't separate the messenger from the message. You know, I, I want to tell you something. You, you go turn on the hose in your backyard and you get a drink, you're going to get a little taste of the hose in that water. Let it run long enough and it'll get clear and you kind of get the hose out. That's where i got to stay prayed up all week long because I don't want it to be too hosey for you when I get up here to preach. <laughs> I don't know if I like how I said that anyway, but whatever. So, all right, enough of that. Let's jump in. What does preparation look like? What does preparation look like? Um, you're comfortable now, and I'm going to make you stand up one time just for one verse. Everybody stand back up. Let's grab our one verse. Here we go. Nehemiah 2, 
First part of it, when you see a little letter behind it, it means we've divided it into sections, and I stopped at a point to make my point. Nehemiah 2.20a. So find a screen where it's comfortable for you to see, and everybody read out loud together. Here we go. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. Now something's got to happen here before we arise and build. God's got to do something. Say it again. The God of heaven will what? will make us prosper. How many of you need some of that? Now, we're from Arkansas, so let me just talk to you in our lingo. Look at your neighbor and say, get you some. That's what we need. We need some of that, some of that favor of God, favor of God that is on us so that what we put our hand to, Psalm 1 says, he will make it prosper because I've got a mission. I have a destiny. I have a reason. The French said a raison d'etre. I have a reason to be. And my reason to be is going to require some resources. And the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will rise up and build. Pray with me this morning. Oh, most gracious, awesome, powerful, heavenly Father, mighty God. We acknowledge you in this place. And with our, with our brother Louis Armstrong, we say, I say to myself, what a wonderful world. With the old hymn writer that said, this is my father's world. God, forgive us when we are so focused on everything that's wrong that we can't see the abundance of everything that is right. Alter our perspectives. Give us, O Lord, fresh eyes. Raise us up to a fresh vantage point to see. Open our eyes to what we have been blinded to. Forgive us when our focus is on everything that's not right because, God, when we know that you are right and we can get God conscious, everything around us can change. Change me. Change us. Let us arise with the prosperity of the Lord in our hands to do what you've called us to do in the Delta. We pray for the other churches of this city, the men of God in these pulpits, that they would preach uncompromisingly the gospel today. Be with them. Pour out your Holy Spirit on West Memphis and Marion. Lord, that this city could be a beacon, a demonstration of what the gospel can do. Lord, I'm careful to say before these people and before you right now that I desperately need you. I cannot do this by myself. Apart from me, I'm, apart from you, I am nothing. But God, I thank you today that I have you, that Christ is in me, the hope of glory, and that in Christ I can do all things because you strengthen me. It's in the mighty name of Jesus, the matchless name of Jesus, the strong name of Jesus that we pray and everybody says, amen. You may be seated this morning. In the presence of the Lord. Last week we birthed a vision. We talked about Nehemiah, whose name means the comfort of Yahweh. And today, I want to weave into your thinking throughout this whole message one thing. As we pick up where chapter 1 leaves off and where chapter 2 opens up this morning, one thing I want you to grasp by Thursday when you're under pressure and the deadlines are hitting and frustration is arising and you're thinking, your, your, your spirit is troubled, I want you to remember this one thing. Look at your screen and everybody say it with me right now. If we can understand the why and wait for the when, God will take care of the how. If we can understand the why and wait for the when, God will take care of the how. The issue is many times is that I get a little glimpse of what why is, why God has made me the way he's made me, why I'm going through the circumstances that I'm facing. And I get a little glimpse of the picture of what things can be or the vision that he's putting in my heart, and I want to do it in my own strength. 
or in my own timing or in my own way. And what I want to show you through the life of Nehemiah just for the next few moments is that he got a vision birthed in his heart, but he didn't immediately jump to take action. Timing sometimes is the critical issue that makes a difference in success and failure. And because I'm a believer, because Jesus is in your heart this morning and you have the hope of glory in your life, His name is Jesus Christ, I believe even failures get redeemed and it's a lesson on the way to God bringing manifestation to your vision or your dream or the reason He's birthed you. You have a reason to be, a raison d'etre. You have a destiny. You have a purpose. It's just the most ridiculous thing to me. It's just... It hurts my heart to see someone 30, 40, 50, even 60 years old still asking the question, why am I here? It was a Pew Research, I'm sorry, no, it was a Gallup poll survey several years ago that was generations were polled cross-generationally, asked the question, what is your purpose? And the biggest question they were all asking is, why am I here? I think it was so interesting that God used... Uh, a man from California by the name of Rick Warren to write a book called The Purpose Driven Life that literally stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for several years because the whole nation is asking the question, what is my purpose? The Purpose Driven Life is getting a glimpse of or a vision of why the Creator made you specifically and uniquely the way He did because everybody in the room is not the same. I mean, there, there are Heinz 57 varieties sitting here just in this room. You don't think God has a sense of humor? Just look around. <laughs> and it's just, it's true. He's made us unique and different and everybody's not the same. And thank goodness we're not the same. One of our values as Victory Church is that we would be a people who would, first of all, intentionally create an environment where, secondly, we would embrace diversity in our community. And that means we acknowledge diversity. Diversity, matter of fact, even the word, I'm going to chase a rabbit for a second because I was just reminded in this, it was during the scholastic period in history where the church and the, 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 the whole school of scholasticism where they were attempting to educate and train and raise up and, and better the community throughout Western Europe and it was the drive to begin to teach the people in order to be able to unify all of the knowledge that they had at the time because there was these diverse fields of knowledge which we would see diversity but then they were attempting to bring unity to it and so from that the concept of the university was born it was born in the church it was born as a vision given from God to people who were desiring to help minister to the community and raise them up and so the university was born an attempt to unify all the diverse areas of knowledge and so what we want to do this morning as we come together we're asking God to show us help me understand the why in my life Help me to be patient to wait for the when because I know that God will take care of the how. Now, that's on every level. That's on your personal vision about yourself, maybe some goals to break a bad habit or establish a good one. Maybe it's financial goals for your family. Maybe it's how you're raising children. You want to raise champions for the kingdom of God. You want to raise young men and women that will be successful. They won't just be a, just a whole bunch of idiots. God help us. You know, we don't want our kids, we want them to, we want them to succeed. We don't want them to fail. And we take responsibility in preparing them. What does Proverbs say? Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's old, he will not do, won't, what, what will he not do? What? Say it. He won't depart from it. And so we're, we're building into, we're inculcating, we're educating. We're, we're, sometimes we're trying to hold them down and beat it into them. 
And whatever it is, maybe it's a vision that God's birthed in your heart for a business. Maybe it's going back to school and continuing your education so that you can fulfill a dream that maybe you postponed for a few years. Because a lot of times we make plans and then life happens. I'm standing up here right now and it's been four months since I lost the love of my life. And I'll just be honest with you, if I'd had that written into the agreement, I would have stopped and renegotiated. I didn't plan this. This slapped me, just was a cosmic slap in the face. And it's taken me kind of a, more than a couple of minutes to try to get adjusted to the new reality, to the raw, the rawness of living in a house that's way bigger than I need to live in and just getting used to the space and the time. And, 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 and so that's why I got another dog. I got two dogs. I got to fill up the space with plenty of noise and rackets and, and um, you know, just dealing and just saying, okay, God, I'm moving into a new chapter of my life. What's next? How do I do this? How do I prepare for? Because I know you're not finished with me. I'm not ready to lay down and die. I'm not, I'm not done. I'm still breathing. I'm still sucking air. So I've got a reason to be here. And, and, and whenever my time is, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready right now. If he says, Michael, it's done, and he calls me home, then great. Praise God. I will rejoice to be in his presence, and I'll see dawn again. Praise the Lord. But if I live to be 30 more years, you know, here, I'm, I'm 56 right now, could easily. Both my parents were 87 years old when they died. They were 11 years apart, but they both died at 87. Mom lived 11 more years after Dad died. And so, you know, you don't, you don't know how long you have. And I want every day to count. I don't want to waste any day. If there is me, I want to be like that thing that was sent around years ago when everybody just got onto emailing and they were talking about how when you die, you know, I want to just literally come sliding in and do cutting a wheelie and on a banana peel right into the grave. Yes, I want to be active till the day I draw the last breath. Because I, I want to be filled with purpose. When you know why you're here, if you can understand the why, and if you can wait for God's win, He'll show up and take care of the how. And don't tell me you're too old because God sent Moses back to Egypt when he was 80 to deliver a nation that had been enslaved for 400 years. Don't tell me you can't clear some land and build a house because God inspired Caleb when Joshua took the children of Israel into the promised land and Caleb said, give me this mountain. It's mine. God promised it to me. He's 80 and he's out there, got his sons going, come on boys. Quit being so lazy. Get up off of your, your blessed assurance and learn how to swing that axe and let's clear this ground. How y'all doing this morning? If, if you understand the why and you wait for the when, God will take care of the how. Nehemiah in all of chapter 1 is basically crying out to God in prayer. i got three things I want to give you this morning. Everybody say praying. Planning, positioning. So it's real simple. This is a good Baptist message. Every good Baptist preacher knows how to alliterate. They all start with P. Praying, planning, positioning. It wasn't intentional. I didn't scramble trying to make it happen. It just were the easy words that I found. Praying, planning, positioning. Let me review Nehemiah 1 real quick. He's about his business. Nehemiah is serving in the court of a monarch who is ruling the world at the time. It's the Persian Empire. It's King Artaxerxes. The Babylonians have, Babylonians have given way to the Persians. Persians are basically king of the world. Artaxerxes is the one sitting on the throne. Nehemiah is a faithful Jew. 
It's been 90 years since the exile has ended and faithful Jews are returning as a remnant to the promised land. Jerusalem is being repopulated, rebuilt slowly by faithful Jews that are returning having been scattered in the diaspora over the earth from the time of the exile. Now, I gave you a lot of history last week. Don't have time to go back and do that. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. It's a governmental position. It's one of great honor. It's one of high risk. He wasn't just the wine quality control expert. He was the wine checking taster to make sure there wasn't poison in it. If Nehemiah took a sip and in five minutes he was still standing, then the king would drink. Because in these days of intrigue, a lot of times disgruntled brothers and cousins and sometimes army generals are making an attempt to have a coup d'etat, a, a, a complete, total takeover militarily or maybe by killing the heir apparent and then basically asserting himself or herself, sometimes kings, sometimes queens, to become the new monarch over the country that's ruling the world. And so Artaxerxes has Nehemiah. He's a faithful Jew. Artaxerxes is not a believer. He's in a pagan culture worshiping pagan gods, but he believes in Nehemiah. Now, you may be in an office somewhere where the boss you have doesn't know Jesus, but there's something about you that he or she likes, and they trust you. Now, make sure you don't blow it. I don't want to try to put too much pressure on you, but you, you have some responsibility. Don't blow it. Seek the Lord. Be honest. Have a good attitude. Show up early. Don't, don't go late all the time and just always having an excuse. Show up there. You want God to promote you? Be promotable. Come on, somebody. You all right? That's way better point than you've acted. If you're going to clap, put your hands together. Come on, if for real, let's, let's really, really be it. Let's do what God's called us to do and be who he's called us to be. And so Nehemiah is in a place of great influence. He meets every major dignitary that comes through, every king visiting queen, every ambassador from a foreign country that visits. He meets them. He's there at the table with them. He's able to have very limited but still has influential conversation with all these dignitaries. So he's meeting and networking and has a whole cadre of people that he can certainly call on. May not know how to call on them, but he's certainly meeting some incredible people of influence in his community where he's operating, where he's ministering, where he's doing his work, where he's, his vocation is being carried out. And he's fine. He's, he hears news. His brother Hanani comes and shows up and tells him, gives him the bad news that there is great trouble and disgrace in Jerusalem because the walls have been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. There's no security. There's crime. Crime rates are just literally all over the place. I mean, it's turn on the news, it's like the state of Chicago has been the last few years, or maybe Memphis with new crime rates that have just hit with murder rates the last couple of years, greater so, I think, than even maybe 1994 was the last one. And um, so all these kinds of bad things are going on, and the reports are out that there's, there's great trouble and there's disgrace. And Nehemiah is so moved, he cries out, begins to mourn, he fasts, he prays. It doesn't just last for a day or two. We have become so numb and desensitized um, I just want to chase a rabbit historically for a second. Um, I'm reminded of Aldous Huxley, the Brave New World writer. He and George Orwell, who wrote 1984, who gave us the vision of a big brother that controls and limits everything. Huxley was a contemporary, and he wrote, and he said, you know, I don't think that's the vision we're going to have at all. 
He said, I believe that we're going to be so inundated with multiple choices that we'll become numb. It's not just Big Brother controlling one thing that we hear, but it's having such a multitude of choices that we don't even care or pay any attention. And I think probably Huxley was more right with his Brave New World view even than Orwell. Now, some of you are going, don't even know what I'm talking about, and I don't, I don't, I'm not going to chase that rabbit any further, but I want you to think about it. Some of you that are, that are thinkers in that regard, you are so overwhelmed with choices, basically most of the time we, have, we, we struggle just trying to make up our minds what we're going to choose. It's like going to eat in a Chinese restaurant, and it's 42 pages on the menu. I want to go, how many kinds of sushi do you have? I guess you don't get that. Uh, whatever, you don't eat raw fish. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe just down here at one of the Mexican restaurants. I'm going, man, how many, how many dishes do you have, and how can you keep up with all of that? Anyway, <clears throat> and so there's so many choices. And so we're overrun, and so we're numb. We hear about a mass murder, and our hearts are broken momentarily, but we basically get up and just live life normally for, uh, in about an hour. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And so Nehemiah hears the news and he's not just momentarily grieved about it. He's mourning and fasting and praying. And, and his, his days of praying turn into weeks and his weeks of praying turn into months. And, and, and this is where I want you to set you up this morning. He has closed out Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2 opens. If you would pull up for me chapter 2, Nehemiah. Just read the first four words. Say it out loud. Early what? <clears throat> Well, if you remember last week, Nehemiah 1, the memoirs of Nehemiah open in the fall or in the autumn is the way the New Living Translation says. So between the autumn of 446 B.C. and now it's 445 B.C., the early spring, the next spring, it's been between four to six months that Nehemiah has been wrestling with not just something that troubled him, but it's become the burden of the Lord on his heart. It's a vision that has begun to give him the picture of a mission. And it's so motivated him that he can't get away from it. He's not gripping it. It has gripped him. And he can't let go of it. He can't shake it. He can't drink it away. He can't sleep it off. Constantly it haunts him and it moves him and it motivates him and he's prayed and he's fasted and cried out to God. He's let the hunger pains of his own belly press his prayers into an intensified cry up to the throne of God to say, God, help me to do something. I know that I'm called to bring a change to my brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. He continued to pray. This is what I want you to see. Months later, four to six months later, early in the spring, and I want to just camp on that just for a couple of minutes. It's so easy in our microwave convenience culture to get a good idea and think in 30 seconds, okay, I've got to put this in three steps in a ladder step goal format. And I got it Monday morning, I got to take action and get this thing done. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You come up with a good idea and you think, man, I got to take some action. And I just want to tell you, this is my, my third little point right under here. Early in the spring, beyond that, immediate action isn't always the best. Say that with me. Immediate action isn't always the best. Sometimes you need to wait and back up. It doesn't mean that you're lazy. It's not inactive waiting like we're standing in the line and we get aggravated as Americans because it takes a long time when you're in line. 
You see a little of my impatience coming through. I read a statistic that said if you live to be 80, you will spend 2.6 years of your life standing in line. And that just something about that just irks me. So if I'm in a line, I'm like trying to learn a new vocabulary word or I'm memorizing a scripture or I'm answering some email or I'm just paying attention to what's going on around me and sharing the gospel with somebody. I don't want to just, just be in the queue, just waiting till it's my turn. Uh, waiting in the Bible is not the inactivity that we think it is. It is very active involvement. It's like when you go to lunch today, your waiter will be actively serving you. They will bring you water. That's if you're in the south, and it'll have ice in it. And I'll, Okay, I'll leave that alone. I don't know why I did that. And your, your, your tea will have sugar in it. It'll be sweet tea. I was in Dallas, Fort Worth with, with Drew, seeing him back in February, and I ordered sweet tea, and they said, well, we don't have sweet tea. I said, wait a minute, isn't Texas in the south? And they said, no, Texas is its own country. I said, forgive me, I forgot. I said, I forgot. Hail the Republic of Texas. <laughs> anyway. But you know what I'm talking about. You're going to sit down at that table, and hopefully you will be generous. If you've had really good service, you will tip them accordingly to how they have served you because they have actively served you. It's not waiting on you. is not just lazy inactivity. So when we're waiting on God, it's not just sitting around not doing anything. Sometimes preparation looks like active waiting. It means taking a class at school. It means uh, involving yourself and reaching out to a neighbor that you've not really taken the time to get to know. It may be uh, doing some other kind of preparation in order to be able to take on a new responsibility at work. I don't know what your waiting period is or how your preparation or what it looks like, but I do know this. I know that if we can understand the why and we can wait for the when, then God will take care of the how. Do you believe what I'm saying this morning? Say amen. Why do we wait? Well, number one, because the vision matures in us. The vision matures in us. My vision for what this church will be and become has matured over the years. It's not the same as it was when I was 28 years old and just starting with basically like Jack and the Beanstalk with a little bag of a couple magic beans and going... I remember leaving North Carolina and Dawn said, who's going to come to this church? I said, I don't know. That wasn't the answer she was looking for either. She's a young wife. We've got a son that's not quite a year old, and she's looking for some financial security. And she says, how are you going to do it? I said, I don't know. Well, what, are you, what, are, what are we doing it with? I said, faith. Huh? I said, baby, just hide and watch. I would, I would say regularly, if you can't believe with me, just hide and watch. Don't, don't, don't get in the way. Don't be a, a weight of doubt. But just, just, just trust God with me. Come on, just hide and watch. And God has over and over and over and over shown up and given His provision and blessing. <laughs> Number two, the vision matures in us. Number two, this is not in your notes, but I want you to write it down. We mature in preparation for the vision. I've been growing in the process of trying to grow this vision. And as I grow, I have a different perspective, and it changes. It morphs into something bigger and better than I could ever think or ask. Ephesians 3.20, Now unto Him, the God who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. Hallelujah. God's bigger than. You know what your problem is not your problem, and it's how you think about your problem that's your problem. Say that fast three times. <laughs> Number two, we pray and then we plan. i got to move. Everybody say, be ready. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give an answer to every man 
of the reason of the hope that is in you and do it with gentleness and meekness. Be ready to give an answer. You want to you be a person with a destiny on your life and have a purpose? Then, then be ready to share with somebody when they ask you how you can have joy in the middle of circumstances that everybody else will be losing their mind. I was encouraged recently because somebody texted me and they said, you know what, you have no idea when you tell us that in the middle of what you face that you every day look in the mirror and you say, I choose joy. I choose joy. I choose joy when I don't feel like it. I choose joy when there is nothing joyful about the way I'm looking at the world. And when I start to get focused and become God conscious, then with that prophet Louis Armstrong, I can say, I say to myself, what a wonderful world. Come on, there's something kingdom of God about that song. Look what he does. Let me read quickly. Planning, who are in Nehemiah chapter 2 today. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan, I guess it's Nisan, Nisan is the car, Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king as wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Now, this is important because if you're serving a monarch, you're serving a dictator, and you show up with his wine and you're sad, then you can lose your head. You can die. And so the king responds in verse 2, and he says, So the king asked me, Why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, Nehemiah says. So why would Nehemiah be terrified? Because he knew that the penalty for being sad in the presence of the king meant his life. And so he responded in that moment. He says, verse 3, but I replied, Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, it's been somewhere between four and six months and Nehemiah has never yet let a peep out of his mouth about the concern or the burden that the Lord's put on his heart. But it has finally become so heavy on him that it's taken over his countenance and his boss has discerned it. The king has perceived it and Nehemiah speaks up to say this is what is happening. In those moments of prayer and fasting and intense, ardent crying out to God, he had said, Oh Lord, please let me be successful. Put it into the heart of the king to be kind and gracious to me and to give me what I need. And he had cried out day after day and night after night. And in this very moment, because he understood the why and Nehemiah waited for the, for the when, God was right in this moment about to show up with the how. Are you following me? He says in verse 4, then the king asks, well, how can I help you? Now, how many of you know when a king who's running the world looks at you, and he's a billionaire by today's standards, multi-billionaire, and he, is, he has the ability to get whatever you need at his beck and call. He says, what can I do to help you? How can I help you? How many of you know it's time to have a plan? There's a time to pray. And there's a time to plan. And Nehemiah's praying had turned into planning. So when the king asked this question, Nehemiah had an answer. Come on, some of you have been praying for God to give you wisdom for your, with your boss and you want a promotion. Be promotable and then have an answer. Get ready. Be the solution to a problem he's wrestling. And guess what? When you become the solution to the problem he or she is wrestling, you'll get more money out of it. Because that's what it means right there. You take on more responsibility, promotion comes. Promotion brings more Increase. That's what you need. Am I helping somebody this morning? Say amen. All right. Verse 4. How can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied. Some, some, of, some of you know how that is. You've, you've been before the boss. You've been called before the committee. 
you've been examined by the team or whatever, and you've had to stand and deliver. And it wasn't a prayer anybody could hear, but some, it was just a real quick, Jesus help me. And it was under your breath. Come on, some of you know what I'm talking about. You got called in and you knew that you were going to have to be on the spot. It's in those moments where the, the Gospel of Matthew says, you don't even have to worry about what you're going to say in that day, for it'll be me that speaks through you. That's what Matthew said. I replied, if it pleases the king, and if you're pleased with me, will your servant send me? Everybody say, send me. You know, it's one thing if you get a, a, a dream and a vision, you get up and try to go do it in your own authority and strength. It's something entirely different when the king sends you to do a job. This is what the New Testament church is. We've been sent to West Memphis. We're not just doing this of our own volition or our own desire or our own whim, but the church has been commissioned. We have been sent by God not to come to this bricks and mortar location, but to go into this world in which we live and take the good news that Jesus is king right now and share with them that Jesus has come to heal and to deliver Everything that the enemy does to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus does the opposite. He, he binds up the brokenhearted. He heals the wounded. He provides for the impoverished. He heals the sick. Come on, somebody say amen. He says, if it please the king, if you're pleased with me, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him says, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I'd be gone, the king agreed to my request. Oh, my goodness. I dumped the whole plan out there, and the king said, yes, this is, this, is, this is man. He's just been before the whole shark tank, and everybody there has made an offer. That's when you get in that hallway in the shark tank, and you do your little Holy Ghost dance. Oh, come on. Are, are y'all awake this morning? Have you never prayed for something for so long, and then when it finally shows up, you about lose your mind because you're really kind of surprised that it actually did? He'd been praying, saying, God, give me success with the king and give me favor with him and put it into his heart. And the very first time he blurts it out, the king says, whatever you need, I'll send you, I'll, author I'll authorize you, I will give you the responsibility, I'll give you the resources. Oh, come on, somebody. Number seven, I said, I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters. I want this written in writing. I want to have papers I want them addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through the territories on my way to Judah. Verse 8, And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. Now, How many of you know where God guides, finish it? Come on, say it again. Where God guides, God provides. And I love this. There are things he didn't even think about to pray for and ask the king that the king throws an extra. Let's read quickly. He says, I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. Now, some of you would just be in a nice kind of altruistic sense. Let's take care of everybody else. Lord, I don't need anything. How many of you know there's nothing wrong with what Nehemiah said right here? When you will put what God wants on his heart first, he will see to it what you have on your heart. He'll get your house built for you. Is that the best you got? I'm sweating up here. I'm sweating up here. 
This is my second time around. And you know what? It's easy sometimes to get the anointing and the Holy Spirit and come in here and get fired up in the first service. And then I'm, I'm like, i got to dig down to my toes to come back and try to keep the fire going in the second service. And the best you got is a little patty cake, patty cake baker's man. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. Wow, what a testimony. Look at this, verse 9. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, I love it. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. He says, I didn't even ask for that. Now, how many of you know when you get the king on your side, everything the king is and everything the king has goes with you? And you, you got to hear me. I'm not talking about Artaxerxes this morning. I'm talking about King Jesus. Uh-oh, verse 10. Here we go. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. That just sounds like trouble in, incarnate right there. That's trouble gone to seed right there. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival. They were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. I'd like to take 20 minutes and preach that. It would be so good, but I don't have that time. So I just want to tell you, no matter what you do, somebody's not going to like it. My pastor said to me years ago, the guy who mentored me, he said, Michael, you're unique, you're gifted, you're talented, you're intelligent. He said, I'm going to tell you, no matter what you do, you're going to make somebody mad. And he said, you can let it tie you up in knots and you can take it personally or you can let it free you to be yourself. He said, the sooner you can get set free to be who you are, the better off you'll be to do what God's called you to do because no matter what you do, somebody's going to criticize it. Whatever you do, somebody's not going to like it. And you can't let that be the barometric pressure in your life in terms of whether you're going to do what God's called you to do because you have to live to please Him. Come on, somebody. They were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. If we can understand the why and we can wait for the when, God will take care of the how. My last point. Are you getting anything out of this this morning? We've prayed. We've planned. Now let's get our positions ready. Here we go positioning. We're in Nehemiah 2 verse 11. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Man, how amazing is it when you've planned for something and you prayed for something and you've let the vision mature in you and you've matured in the process of getting ready to carry out the vision. And then when God actually answers your prayers and he gives you favor with the king and the king is disposed to give you everything you ask for and he gives you requests and agrees to it and commissions you and authorizes you, gives you the responsibility, gives you the resources and you have carte blanche with the king's name behind you. And then guess what? You finally pack up. Read those first five words. So I arrived in Jerusalem. I love that. I'm going to tell you in just a few weeks... We're going to stand out there on that property that's been paid for since 2010. And I and the shepherds of this church are going to put our foot on a shovel and we're going to break some ground and turn it over. And I'm going to say, I'm going to say, you're going to have to just stand here and give me a minute because i got to breathe this rarefied air because I've been waiting on this moment for a long time. It's like the old black preacher that said, somebody hold my mule. i got to give God some praise in this place. Go on. Three days later, I slipped out during the night taking only a few others with me. I'd not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. How many of you know sometimes it's better just to keep your mouth shut 
Everybody doesn't need to know what you're dreaming about, Joseph, because you got brothers that hate you anyway. Keep your mouth shut. Wait till it's time to tell your dream and make sure who you tell your dream to. He said, I hadn't told him about the plans. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, see, sometimes you've got to go on a little spiritual reconnaissance. You've got to reconnoiter. You've got to be searching for knowledge about what's going on strategically, the features of the land, where the enemy is, and what you're going to have to do to build what you've been called to build. Things that you're facing. Go back to the scripture for me. You guys are doing great in the media booth. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, the jackal's well, over to the dung gate. That'll preach right there. <laughs> Every city needs a dung gate. Everybody thank God for the dung gate. Now, I'm going to preach this next week because all these gates have a spiritual significance. You know, you better have a dung gate in your life where you can get rid of the stuff, okay? <laughs> to inspect the broken walls and the burned gates. Went to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. How many of you know when you make a decision to start making changes in your life and you start a transformation process, maybe it's to break a bad habit or to establish a new one, you just do a natural renovation process in your house. You're going to have so much dust and junk, it becomes a hazardous zone where you've got to be careful where you walk because you could slip down and fall because of the rubble. Some of you right now, you need, to, you need to put up a sign in your life that says, pardon our mess, it's under construction. And you need to just tell everybody, just back up, because you know what? I know it's a mess, there's some rubble, but God's doing a rebuilding in my life. And if you will hang on long enough and you don't quit, God will take your mess and he will make it a message. Come on, somebody, help me a little bit in this place. Even when your donkey can't get through the rubble. And look what he does in verse 15. So it was still dark. I went up the Kidron Valley inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I'd been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. My goodness, if you can just let that vision gestate. He waited till the right time. Nehemiah knew the why. He understood the why, and he waited on the when with the king. And when it was the right time to share it, then God showed up and took care of the how. Well, guess what? God's about to give the same song, second verse, here with the city officials because he's shown up in Jerusalem and he's ridden around and inspected how bad things are. Look at verse 17. I hadn't spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, and the officials or anyone else in the administration. Another translation says it this way. I hadn't told the folk who were going to do the work what I was going to have them do. Now, how you like that one? <laughs> was it Tom Landry, the great coach of... The Dallas Cowboys, he said it this way. He said, I take a team of diverse men and convince them to do what they don't want to do so they can become what they do want to become. Go through crazy physical training, strict diets, regimen, being faithful day in, day out, getting up early, training late, going, you know, not, not breaking those, that bond and that team. And this is literally what you're called to do. Come on, parents, you're to be a spiritual Tom Landry. Those, those kids don't want to halfway do what you've asked them to do, but you've got to motivate. Sometimes motivation comes in all kinds of ways. That's another message for another day. <laughs> but now comes. But now. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now stop right there a minute. Too many times we try to get folk to do something that we feel like we need to do for our city or for our family or for our business. 
And too many times, if you don't convince folk how much they need it, they're not going to lay down their lives to sacrifice to do it. But if you can show them how bad it is and the trouble that we're in, look at, look at what they said. It's in ruins. We're destroyed by fire. And he says, back up. Go back. Go back. 17. You jumped too soon. Let us sit, Read it with me. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. When you can show somebody how bad it is and how they need this, Jesus, they will be willing to lay down their hearts and their lives to do something that otherwise they won't sacrifice for because they're not aware of their need. I mean, if you know, we're just so blessed. It's the reason the gospel so proliferates in countries where poverty, because people know they have a need. But when you're in a nation that's rich and everybody is blessed, we don't even know we have needs of spiritual things. And sometimes we've got to we have a train wreck and hit a wall before we cry out to God and say, God, I desperately need you. Now, we're, go ahead. Let me finish. Three verses and we're done. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about the conversation with the king. How I many know there's a time when you open your mouth and you're, will, you're ready to say, you know what? I not only have a plan, I've prayed about this for months, and I shared it with the king, and he's given me everything we need to do it. Now, you see the trouble that we're in. Let's arise and build. And guess what? When they hear your testimony, how God took your mess and made it into a message, they'll be ready to get on team with you and help you rebuild. Come on, somebody. 19 and 20, and we're finished. 19, they replied at once, Yes, let's rebuild the wall. Yeah! So they're responding. And I love this. Everybody read that last line there. So they began the good work. You know what? I don't care how much rubble is all around you. When you have a vision of what it's going to be, it's good work. Like the guy on the job site, the foreman comes out and he looks at him and the guy's just grumbling. He's got a bad look on his face. He asks the young man what he's doing. The young man says, I'm just digging this ditch. He walks over to another guy 20 feet away and he says, sir, what are you doing? He says, He's still digging a ditch, but he says, oh, I'm going to build a wall. And he's a little bit more excited. He walks over to another guy who's whistling, and everybody's kind of gathering around him, and he's got motivation. He has a smile on his face. And he says, sir, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a cathedral. Now, you know what? You can dig ditches, or you can build walls, or you can catch a vision and build a cathedral in your life, and you can be filled with joy as you do it. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. They began the good work. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshub the Arab. Where'd he come from? It's amazing how you put two troublemakers together and they multiply. <laughs> Geshub the Arab heard of our plan and they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you belling against the king, they ask? Here's verse 20 and we're finished. Read it out loud with me, everybody. I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, no legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. You need to get it set in your mind that the opposition against you is not tan-skinned or yellow-skinned or red-skinned or white-skinned or black-skinned or brown-skinned. It's not about the skin. It's about the one who is motivating the person behind that. And we don't fight against flesh and blood. The Latinos that have come in and taken your jobs is not your problem. The black man who's in his own right, trying to make people recognize that his life matters, black lives matter, that's not your problem. I'm talking to white people right now. Or everybody else that you want to blame. When we really get down to it, most of the time we are our own problem and we are limiting ourselves. 
And until we can take this stinking spirit of racism in the Delta down to the grave and bury it and say, here lies, no more. And we can realize that we're not fighting with anybody of any color, but we're fighting with principalities and we're fighting with mentalities, with mindsets, with wrong thinking, with prejudice that somebody had to be taught how to think. Babies aren't born thinking that mess, that nonsense that's inspired by the devil. Your oppositional indicator, when you start something, a good work, and the opposition arises, it's just an indicator that you're doing the right thing. And you need to pick up and you need to keep doing what God has called you to do. I'm finished this morning, and I pray that you've gotten something out of this. Put your hands together. God of heaven will prosper us, the, the, the NLT says. The ESV, I think, says. And we will arise and build. The ESV says the God of heaven will make us succeed and we will start rebuilding this wall. Arise and build. God's called you to be a builder. You cannot build a life that will withstand the storms that are sure to come. We... Somebody texted me last night and says, what are we going to do about church if we get enough snow? I said, well, first of all, we're not going to get any snow. I'm sorry if that's not talking faith to you snow queens out there. I said, if we do, then we'll, we'll cancel it or we'll do whatever. Storms come. They blow through this area. Straight line winds come and do damage, uproot trees rip the roofs off of houses. One of the great parables that Jesus taught was in Matthew 7 and in Luke 6. And he says, there are two men. One is a wise man who builds his house on rock and he digs down deep and he lays a foundation. And he says, when the storms come, when the, when the floods come and the rains fall down and the floods come up, he says, then the wise man's house stands firm because he built on the rock. He said, These, this man is the man who hears my sayings and he puts them into practice. He says, a foolish man is one who hears my sayings. Now, both of them are out there with ears on their head hearing what Jesus says. But the foolish man hears it but doesn't take action appropriately. The scripture says he builds his house right on the sand and when, everybody say when, when the storms come, when the floods come and the rains come down and the floods go up, then the foolish man's house is destroyed. Storms in your life are when and not if. They reveal the architectural integrity of the foundation that your life is built on. You can't build a life that will withstand the storms without Jesus as your foundation and Jesus as the cornerstone of that foundation. Don't take another step. Don't draw another breath. In this room this morning, I know you've been encouraged. You feel strong now in this. You, you, you always leave. You come to victory. You're going to leave aware of God who loves you and who is there on your side and is strengthening you. Even if, even if you're not right with Him, He's offering you an opportunity right now if you've been very far from Him to come be near Him again, to, to be reunited with Him. Somebody says, I've never known Him as my Father. Then, great, I'm talking right to you this morning. It's not about having a report card that's good enough or a bunch of gold stars of all the stuff you've done good for people because nobody can have enough. Romans 3 says, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody in the room's blown it. Let's just own it and, and just admit it. 
There's one perfect person in this room. His name is Jesus. Romans 5, Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's everybody in this room. He took your place. He was your substitute. The godly died for the ungodly. Jesus is the godly. We, I, I, me, I'm the ungodly. I'm the unrighteous. I'm the unjust. I'm the sinner that he died for. Romans 6.23 says it this way. You can keep living like you're living and the payment will be death. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus says, I'll interrupt all of that and I'll give you a gift that you didn't work for and it's called eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Finally, Romans 10 says it this way. He says, you know what, boys? He says, if you believe this story that God sent Jesus and he died in your place and God raised him from the dead, and you call on him and say, be the boss of my life. Be Lord of my life. Scripture says it this way, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But that just sounds really religious. It's very churchy. Bottom line is, if you hear this story and you believe it, and you say, God, I'm desperate, I need you, be my boss, call the shots in my life, be Lord of my life, the Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not in saying the right words. There are no magic formulas. I can, you, can, you can mimic the words I say in a moment, but if it's not happening in your heart, I can't do that for you. You've you got to cry out to God and say, God, I desperately need you. You, you pray this in faith. You speak these words in faith and, and cry out to God. I promise you he will begin a major change, a work in your life. Let's bow our hearts together for a word of prayer.